This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Ahoy hoy and welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. I am not Brian Kilmeade. I'm Brian's best work friend. My name is Kennedy and it is lovely to be here with you. Brian is uh, having his yearly bout of plastic surgery in Switzerland. Uh, Very, very excited about the results which he will unveil in exactly one week. They're taking the bandages off today and then it will be a series of saunas, charcoal baths, and some Swiss tinctures. That, that's, that's the reason he travels so far, to look so good. But don't worry. We've got everything covered for you for this entire showroom. Uh, Brian has entrusted me at the helm, which I think was an incredibly foolish idea. But I am very, very willing to uh, grab the this bull by the horns and ride it all the way into the sweet, sweet radio sunset that my friend Brian Kilmeade has laid before us. So let me ask you something. In 2020, when you know we're looking ahead at the presidential contest, because unlike in other countries, our presidential races never cease. Uh, people are always running for president. It takes a very long time. It takes a lot of money, a lot of resources, and a lot of focus from the country. Does it Does it make us better as a society to have presidential campaigns that are interminable that last for three and a half years at a time i don't know it's kind of exhausting but for those of us who love and cover politics the horse race never disappoints so if you look back you know four years ago if you look back at 2019 and where we were pre-pandemic did you think that the two emergent voices and exploding candidacies would belong to Vivek Ramaswamy and RFK Jr. I don't think a lot of people have those two fellas on their bingo card, but here we are. And it's very interesting. And I know that especially RFK Jr., he is a lightning rod for controversy and opinion. And I'm okay with that because he's talking about ideas in ways that that politicians normally don't, and which is confusing to people because, as my parents were Camelot Democrats, there are a lot of people who would like to return to the Kennedy dynasty when it felt like the country was entrusted to people who put public service and uh, booty slapping ahead of all else in this country. And the mystique was created along with tragedy and, you know, rising from the ashes. The political phoenix of that family uh, turns out to be RFK Jr. And Vivek Ramaswamy is another one of those people who has always had interesting ideas, but has coupled that with an unenviable 
work schedule in terms of reaching out to people, going to events, talking to people one-on-one. And, you know, this idea of door knocking is relatively new to presidential politics. The idea of, of going out and meeting people where they are, not just in New Hampshire, not just in Iowa, that's rote. That is mediocre. But Vivek has always been a very clear thinker who has concisely put his ideas down. And now the thought of putting those ideas into action is resonating with a lot, a lot of voters. And that has to make other people who are running for president, like Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, that has to make all of them very nervous, but especially maybe Ron DeSantis, because as Ron DeSantis is having a much tougher time keeping his campaign afloat, having fired a third of his campaign staff, Vivek is running a tight ship. And like RFK Jr., you can't put him in one box. You you cannot jam him in one category. And, you know, these these are two people who sit around and think about solutions Even if you don't agree with them, you have to respect the process. Vivek Ramaswamy joins me now. Welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show, Vivek. It's good to be on. How are you doing? I'm doing real good. I mean, this is a a crazy time. And when I look at a candidacy like yours, I know what's important to you culturally. I, I know what must feel like economic urgency for voters. But how do you rank what is most important to tackle when you're running for president? I think we have to get to the heart of what's actually done in our country, Kennedy. And the economy is in a malaise. It's true that we're facing a loss of our stature on the global stage. But these things are, up, are downstream of the real upstream cause, which is, I think, a loss of national identity itself. We're in the middle of this identity crisis as a country where faith and patriotism and hard work and family, the things that used to ground us, they have disappeared. And I think that that shows up. That leaves a black hole in its wake. And then various poisons fill that void. So the cultural poisons that many others like to talk about as well, from wokeism to transgenderism to climatism. But even a flailing economy, even depression, anxiety, fentanyl usage, these are symptoms of a deeper void of purpose and meaning in our country. And I think what's part of what's fueling our rise is that message of getting to the root cause of what's going on, but also having an unapologetic actual rise on the back of it for saying this is what we're running to. We're not just running from something. We're running to something. That, and I, that's, I, that's exactly what we're doing. Yeah, and I, I don't disagree with you. I, I think that we should return to being an aspirational country, you know, a country that wants to do well, a country that wants our neighbors to do well, a country that won't accept the uh, the, the dissolution of cities and, you know, the violation of rights when, you know, disgusting behavior proliferates. You know, I was looking at video today of women just strolling out of a Burlington Coke factory with three giant shopping carts full of stolen goods, and that's fine. You you look at what's happening with homeless encampments and women being raped and people defecating on sidewalks, and, you know, th- and that is the downfall of civil society, and that is not okay. But, you know, you talk about – you touch on something that I think is critically important, and 
I agree with you that there is a root cause here, but we have a mental health crisis happening right now. And it started in the pandemic, especially with young adolescents. And, you know, it has now made a ripple effect and it's not getting better. And I don't know that I necessarily trust government to make it better because I think they have created a lot of the environments that make this mental health care crisis worse uh, but but they they don't have the solutions. But you also have a government that is spending itself out of control and into oblivion. So how would your presidency fix those two things? Well, I think you get into the root cause there as well. Money is another substitute, the fake money that we're printing, money raining from on high like mana from heaven. To It's like showering cocaine on a cocaine addict. That doesn't actually solve the underlying problem. And I think you describe it as a mental health epidemic. That's accurate. But I think it's even the cause of that mental health epidemic is something that predates the pandemic. I think the pandemic just exposed it and made it worse, which was this deeper void of purpose. And I do not want the government, Kennedy, solving that problem. The government cannot solve that problem. That's going to require a revival in every sphere of our life, the revival of family, the revival of faith, the revival of the value and virtue of individual hard work. But here's what the government can do, is at least stop throwing kerosene on the flames. Right now, the government pays people to do the exact opposite of what they should want to do, more to stay home than to go to work. Well, that's not only bad for an economy, it's also bad for depression and anxiety. That's part of what fuels depression and anxiety, when people lose their sense of self-worth by playing video games in their parents' basements as millennials rather than getting a job, paying people more. Single mothers in the inner city of Chicago, the South Side, or Kensington, Philadelphia, where I visited, more money not to have a man in the house than to have a man in the house. They're responding to that economic incentives, but that's part of what gives us a 25% fatherlessness epidemic across the country. Talk about paying people more not to repay their student loan debts than to pay it back. And so the government has played a big role in this, part of that with the money printer machine at the Fed. But What they've done is repeatedly paid people to do the opposite of what is even best for them. So no, do I expect the government to serve as a pastor and revive that missing sense of faith? No, I think we need pastors and other people across this country, family leaders and coaches and teachers and parents to do that. But what we do need to do is get the government out of the way. A big part of how we do it is to shut down that federal bureaucracy, that administrative state, which I've offered – you know, if I may say it myself, Kennedy, uh, unprecedented clarity on exactly how we would do it, the mechanics of it, I do intend to get this done. And when I leave office in January of 2033, I will, on good terms, tell the American people that we once again have three branches of government instead of four. We're not dependent on our enemy for our modern way of life. Our economy is growing again as a result at four plus percent. And most importantly, young Americans and all of us are proud to be American again today in 2033. And that will cause the economic malaise and the psychological malaise and the mental health epidemic to, in many ways, sort itself out as a byproduct of it. That's the way I see it. And I see an opportunity to actually do it, Kennedy, but I need to be the president to be able to lead that in the same way Reagan did. And that's why I'm in this race. So let's talk a little bit about RFK Jr. because you guys touch on a lot of the same themes. Did you have you and RFK Jr. on your presidential bingo card four years ago? (laughs) I did not, no. Do you think he's interesting, and do you follow his campaign? 
I think he is interesting. I've spoken to him several times over the course of the campaign. I don't agree with everything he says. I mean, he is, I'm dead set against affirmative action. He's in favor of it. I think he favors much more aggressive climate policies than I do. I think the climate change movement's a cult, but that's healthy disagreement. We both respect the virtues of free speech, of individual self-determination and self-governance, of a constitution with three branches of government, not four. And one of that disappoints me is that the Democratic Party isn't even letting him debate. That's I want the Democratic Party to be the best version of itself. That makes our country stronger. It makes the Republican Party better. Yeah, and, and I so, would I would like for Joe Biden to answer some of the inconsistencies about his son's business dealings alone. I don't want him to be further shield uh, shielded by other Democrats and by mainstream media. So. You know, in in two years, God forbid, if he's reelected, he goes downhill even faster. And those institutions are looking at each other like they're kind of surprised. How do you think the issues that he's got with Hunter Biden and, you know, as the revelations grow and reveal themselves, how much trouble does that pose for his reelection? I think it poses serious trouble for his reelection. And. I expect to be the nominee, Kennedy, but I am the nominee. I don't think they're going to let Joe Biden run against me. I think they're going to put up a different puppet. This puppet will have outlived his purpose, and I do not think the juxtaposition of me as the candidate for the Republican Party against him as the Democrat running is going to be something that they're going to be able to sustain, especially after having pointed out to alleged misdeeds of his what he thinks is his main competitor now, Trump. That's going to boomerang back when I'm the nominee. And I think that that's not going to be able to sustain even a a facially plausible campaign. So it'll be Gavin Newsom or Michelle Obama or somebody else. I don't think it's going to be Michelle Obama. I think it's Gavin Newsom wants it so badly. He's got very pointy elbows and he's going to use those elbows to burst the vice president's balloon. Now, one thing that uh, I I would like to fan the flames of your libertarianism, I, I hope that you return to a philosophical model of limited government in all yes. of your words and deeds. And I know when you were an undergrad at Harvard, uh, you had some libertarian freestyle leanings, and you, in fact, had a, a very fruitful alter ego, Devec, who was uh, an accomplished freestyle rapper. Listen to this. You better lose yourself in the music, the moment you own it. You better never let it go. That is that is Vivek Ramaswamy back in the early aughts, feeling Eminem, uh, unleashing the lyrical miracle on the crowd. Uh, does does that undergraduate young MC still exist in this presidential hopeful? The spirit of it absolutely is in my bones. I still have those libertarian instincts deep in my bones. Believe me, that was me. That was me rapping on Eminem. But I've also been. I was an original uh, lyricist as well at times mm-hmm. during college. Yes, you were. But but I believe in. So, so so I haven't changed those convictions. I've just added to them, Kennedy. So I I believe the individual should be free from the state. I also believe that there are things that the individual needs to figure out for himself on how to live a meaningful life, and I care about those questions too which is what leads me to be a conservative today, but with those deeply anti-government libertarian instincts woven into my, in, into my very soul. And 
you have my word that that is how I will lead this government accordingly. It's why shutting down the unconstitutional regulatory state is at the top of my domestic policy agenda. And I just don't believe in slogans. I believe in truth and I believe in reality, which is why we've offered really painstaking detail on exactly how I'm going to do it. I've been a CEO. I've built multi-billion dollar businesses before. Mm -hmm. Yes, the federal bureaucracy will be a bigger beast than any I've taken on in the past. But I'm in this because I'm ready for the job. And that's the that's the fire I want you to hold my feet to. All right. So hold let me I, I have a very important do. question for you. I knew I know that you grew up just outside Cincinnati. Do you love Joe Burrow as much as my 18 year old daughter does? I think I do. I have to confess that <laughs> I really, maybe not in the same way, but but in the same magnitude. Yes, that's what I would say. All right. Well, Vivek, best of luck to you as your campaign continues to surge. It has been a fascinating experience seeing you uh, deflect and create. And I, I have very high hopes. Vivek Ramaswamy, thanks for stopping by. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Well, he's never been very good with words. No, but I wouldn't, I'm not reluctant to say that for partisan reasons, Sean. No, okay. I, what I've tried to do during this campaign is avoid personal attacks on people. I will say whether he's up to it or not, whether he's making his own decisions, the decisions that are coming out of the White House are bad decisions. Yet. You don't have to be reluctant at all. Go ahead and give it. He's not fit to serve. That's obviously RFK Jr. Uh, in his town hall earlier this week with Sean Hannity talking about whether the president is fit to serve. He's not. And that's okay to admit. And we're actually pretty horrible people if we continue with this elder abuse. And it, it was it was a very interesting sit down that RFK Jr. and Hannity had and the thing that I respect about him. So I met RFK Jr. I, I met him a few times. I've interviewed him several times. Uh, we were both at Freedom Fest in Memphis about a week and a half ago, and it, it was nice to talk to him and to hear him answer people's questions. He doesn't have a filter, which you know, if, if you loved it in Trump, you should love it with every politician. Don't hold back. Don't shellac yourself. Don't dip yourself in clear nail polish. And make us think that you're shiny and impervious. Get a little dirty. Tell us the truth. It's the Brian Kilmeade. I'm Kennedy. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Now it's time to tackle Florida. 
and whether or not Ron DeSantis has what it takes to cross the finish line or even make the podium. His uh, acumen in doubt. Joining me now, he's the editor of National Review, author of The Case for Nationalism, Rich Lowry. Here on the hey. program. Hey, Rich. Speaking about acumen at a podium, you, you introduced a panel I was on at the Freedom Fest and just lit up this crowd of, of 50 people at uh, 8.45 <laughs> in the morning or whatever it was. It's really funny because Freedom Fest is a four-day convention. It's in Las Vegas every other year, and in the off-Vegas years, goes to different cities. This year, it was Memphis. And although it's a very dangerous city, people still, they find their way out into the world throughout the conference. And, you know, the, the first full day, the first morning, Thursday morning, there are a lot of people in attendance. But as the week rolls on, fewer and fewer people make those early morning sessions to their detriment. Yeah, so my my conclusion, I didn't know about the the rotating, um, alternating uh, sites, but it just seemed to me, having been to the Las Vegas Freedom Fest and then to this one, they just choose the hottest, muggiest city they can find. <laughs> yeah, I can't can't <laughs> always be a dry heat. Yeah, exactly yeah. right, and and a really dangerous one, which uh, was yeah. it was it was fun because I haven't uh, been in head to toe Kevlar in quite some time, so that was <laughs> that was a nice change. So, Rich, you and I are both Yankees fans. I hear that you have been so effective as National Review editor. They're thinking about replacing Aaron Boone with you. Are those rumors true? (laughs) Poor Aaron Boone. You know, it's not his fault that none of these guys can hit, but it's – it's been distressing and not a lot of fun. You know, when, when you have a team that can hit but has terrible pitching, at least it's entertaining, right? You're losing 10 to 9 or something. But, uh, uh, you know, lo- losing um, 3 to 1 or 5 to nothing is not, uh, is not great shakes. Yeah, or 9 to 3. That also uh, mm-hmm. that'll hit you right in the baby maker. Um, so let's talk politics because, you know, this, this presidential race, I was just talking to Vivek Ramaswamy and, you know, he was one of the non-traditional candidates who was gaining traction. Ron DeSantis had such an unbelievable victory coming into this presidential cycle. Has he squandered all of that goodwill? Are we witnessing a full-blown implosion? Uh, what is happening here by your estimates? So everything is consistent with the total meltdown. That that doesn't mean he's necessarily heading to oblivion because he can have meltdowns and come back. You know, it's happened John Kerry, John McCain, other instances. But you'd prefer not to be not to be melting down. And I, I think the uh, you know I'm actually writing a column about this as we speak. The the Florida the Ron DeSantis Florida uh, the Florida version of Ron DeSantis a, as governor would talk to anyone right. We all saw these clips of him at gaggles and press conferences with hostile jousting with hostile reporters. Instead of building on that, they cocooned him. You know, Vivek will talk to anyone. And and for a while there, DeSantis would only talk to friendly media. That was a big mistake. When he was governor of Florida, they they showed no signs that they really thought Twitter was the key to unlocking electoral uh, magic in Florida, but that's the way they've acted in the the presidential campaign. And then also, he was a governor with a big pragmatic streak. You know, he was cleaning up the the waters and protecting the the waters and repairing bridges quickly and responding effectively to to hurricanes. And the cultural stuff was 
part of what he was doing. But you look at his reelection ads, it was mostly like he saved my job, you know, he uh, he paid me more as a teacher, that kind of stuff. And in an attempt to get to Trump's right on the culture, he's almost emphasized nothing else. At least you, you hear nothing else, even though 40, 50 percent of Republicans say the economy is their their most important issue. And then, you know, the biggest thing, though, is like he wasn't running against Trump in Florida, right? He was running against Charlie Crist, uh, a, a kind of a washed out has been who'd switched parties. And Trump changes everything. And that's, I think, if DeSantis wasn't running against Trump, that's a big if. You know, if Trump wasn't in the field, DeSantis would be the front runner, not necessarily the nominee. There's still other problems uh, with him and his campaign. But the, the big the big factor defining this race is Trump and the indictments. And uh, Trump went to a higher, he was already ahead, but he went to a higher trajectory after the Bragg in, indictment, and he stayed there. Is there any way for someone like Ron DeSantis, and this could apply to the other candidates, to take issue with Trump's moral standing? And if there is truth to any of the indictments, attack him on that and make a case that he also, like Joe Biden, is not fit to serve because of those moral failings, but at the same time rail against the weaponization of government, which Trump supporters— and non-Trump supporters, yep. you know, see very clearly. How do you thread that needle? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a needle to be threaded there somewhere. It's just tough because you, you look at the polling, and Republicans are open to alternatives to Trump. They just don't want Trump attacked. So h- how does that work? You know, how are you going to figure that out? It's very hard. And I think you know, a version of it is kind of what you were outlining. You know, uh, you shouldn't have been indicted um, over the documents, sir. That's that's ridiculous. If I'm elected, you're getting pardoned for for that uh, immediately. Uh, it, it shows politicized justice. But what were you doing? You know, what, what are these things in your bathroom. We can't be distracted by this. We need to be more effective, more serious. Maybe something like that can work. Um, but, you know, I emphasize maybe. It, it just it just might be that Trump is the, the quasi-incumbent. Uh, quasi-incumbents don't lose, and he's he's uh, going to be the nominee for the third, third time. It doesn't really matter what anyone says or does. So what happens when in, in you have written about this? You've got a Democrat party who knows that they hate Trump and they will make a case for they would like to impeach him even though he's not in office you know they they want to indict him they want to prosecute him they want to incarcerate him they hate him so much but there's this odd tension in the Democrat party because they hate the country so much that they want someone they despise to be the nominee I mean, that, that's a really disgusting place for mm-hmm. our politics to land. You mean they, they want Trump to be the nominee? Yes. Yeah. Um, they, they think he is um, the most beatable of the plausible Republican candidates. They're, they're probably right about that. Uh, they're probably right about that uh, maybe in, in 2016, but we saw how it turned out in 2016. And uh, I, I think it'd be kind of a coin flip, a, a Trump-Biden race. The, the general election polling, for whatever it's worth, is pretty pretty even. Trump's ahead uh, in, in a number of these polls. And Biden's just incredibly weak in terms of his political standing, in terms of his literal Standing. I mean, he's increasingly <laughs> rickety, and everyone can see it and feel it, and that yeah. shows up in the polls. And then and that, that the, also, the, by the way, that doesn't get better. That doesn't resolve yeah, itself. Right. I don't know if yeah, anyone's ever had a grandparent, but when you know when they're on the downward trajectory, they tend not to bounce back up. 
Yeah. So if it's if it's some medical condition, it's not getting better. If it's just aging, it doesn't get better. And I went through this, you know, with my uh, with my parents, my mom in particular. God bless her soul. But you know, when they start to walk that way, you got to wait. Is there the corner of the rugs up? You know, be care, you know, you're holding your breath every every step. And that's kind of where we are with Biden now. There's a story NBC did the other day about how he's he's not going up the big steps. Uh, on Air Force One uh, anymore, um, most of the time. Are they going to have a treadmill? Huh? Are they going to have a treadmill, just a, a well, ramp, they, they, an electronic I mean, that's what ramp? This story referred to apparently, you know, JFK who had his own health issues. They used a cherry picker once to get him in to Air Force One, and we might be that way. That they are soon, that was but they're using the invention the of the iPhone. I mean, can belly. you? How much? How much impact would that have on the country in the race if we saw the president? And, you know, one of those stair carriers where he just sits in it and and has a a little safety belt and just all the way up the the steps of Air Force One. I know. I think it's uh, it'd be pretty unsustainable. You know, the way I think about it is if he doesn't need a walker now, he'll probably need one in a year. Can a president of the United States have a walker? Probably not, right? So, so they'll just trot them out until something terrible happens. And there have been some close calls. There was one in the G7 summit in Japan. He was coming down concrete steps, and he lost his balance and, and caught himself, thank God. But it would have been horrible. It would have been a horrible scene. And, and uh, if you're a Democrat – I mean if you're an American, you have to fear this. If you're a Democrat, you have to fear it because it might be that he stays upright until October 2024 when he's in a tight race with Trump and then has a terrible fall you know, and is at a rehab facility for weeks and loses – the, the general. So he's he's a really risky proposition for the, the Democrats. Yeah, no kid. I mean, my grandmother, God rest her soul, she fell down, same thing, lost her footing, broke her hip, never got yeah. out of bed. Uh, she she lived for 15 months. They were glorious months, and we loved having her there, but her quality of life was mm-hmm. deeply compromised, and it happened in a half a second. But, yeah. you know, we, we talk about the president's deficits, which are numerous, his deficits. But we don't talk about the things that he's done right, the miracles that he has performed. Here's cut 14. And there's still, we're still feeling the profound loss of the pandemic, as I mentioned, of over 100 people dead. That's 100 empty chairs around the kitchen table. Every single loss, there are so many people left behind and brokenhearted. I mean, he has been so good as president. He actually <laughs> um, reanimated the the millions of people who died from covid and now uh, he's so good at lazarusing those who uh, passed uh-huh. that that we're down to a uh, hundred victims. So, so I, I actually hadn't heard that clip yet. Now was this was this the same event where he also said we'd ended cancer? <laughs> Did you see that one? Yeah, yeah. No, you want to hear yeah, that? I, Here we go. Here's your Joe Biden ending cancer. You know, uh, why why America <clears throat> have sort of lost faith for a while and be able to do big things. If you could do anything at all, Joe, what would you do? I said I'd cure cancer. They looked at me like, why cancer? Because no one thinks we can. That's why. And we can. We can end the cancer as we know it. Did we? Did we end cancer as we know it? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, that's great. Uh, I wish that were true, Rich. I know. Don't we all? I mean, we, we all know, know people who are in the throes of, of battling cancer now. So, yeah, that, that'd be miraculous and wonderful. Not true. This is the, the worst clip since, I guess, it was last week with the president of Israel nearly falling asleep reading his notes. So, as you say, it, it's, it's not going to get better. And, and Democrats know this. They talk about it privately. You probably have some green room conversations with your Democratic friends about this, but very few will admit it publicly.
So who do they want? I, obviously, you can't have Kamala Harris because she's she's so incompetent and incapable of stringing sentences together. People have thrown their hands up and they just go, yeah, maybe maybe she's drinking. That's it. Maybe the, mm-hmm. the job, maybe there's so much emotional and professional pressure that she she's just taken to the bottle as a coping mechanism. <laughs> That's the only thing that and, and I'm not I'm not accusing the vice president of being a stumbling drunk. I don't think that's it. I, I think that uh, her challenges are deeper seated. Yeah, that she's just. But who do they? Who do they want? Do they want unlikable. Gavin Newsom? No. This this is this is why they're uh, uh, just hoping for the best with Joe Biden, right? Kamala Harris would be a debacle, and Gavin Newsom, you know, so obvious, right? He's just hovering behind Biden, sir. I hope I hope you don't, uh, you know, I hope you don't take a wrong step today, you know. <laughs> Uh, but I'll be here if you do. Um, you know, he looks the part. He has has charisma, but way over, you know, mainstream cultural positions if you're in California, but way out there in terms of the rest of the country. And also personal stuff that's okay in California, but I think even in, in contemporary America would be kind of difficult to uh, defend. So, you know, the, the, I think both parties would probably be best off with like a, a boring, some boring candidate, right? Just, just some boring, competent person. Uh, on the Democratic side, some no-name senator would probably beat Trump. Um, you know, just an average Republican would probably beat Biden. But it, the the odds are on a, a Biden-Trump um, a rematch, and they're both uh, really unpopular. And uh, as I say, I think it'd be about a about a uh, about a coin flip. So what you're saying is we deserve Henry Cuellar versus Mike Pence. <laughs> yeah, let's bring it on, America. <laughs> so who do you think, if, if DeSantis implodes and he can't get his footing again, uh, who on the Republican side do you see surging and moving in? Well, I think uh, I think both Vivek and Tim Scott are due to have a, a moment. You know, you've seen in some national polls Vivek um, picking up, not not so much in state polls. Whereas in the state polls, um, you've seen Scott, at least in some of them, getting high singles, low doubles. You know, he's not rocketing, but he's uh, the trajectory is upward. And you know, the, the debates uh, sh- tend to shift things around a little bit. I, I don't think Trump's going to be there. Uh, I think he's going to let them be scorpions in a bottle. The rest of these candidates, but you know. Someone's going to excel there, and that that might matter. Just the, I just at the moment, it might be because I lack imagination. It's hard for me to see anyone besides DeSantis um, eating enough into the the MAGA vote, and then also holding enough traditional Republicans to get to fifty. Um, you know, it's, it's I. I think Scott is probably too conventional to do that. I mean, Vivek just doesn't doesn't have the uh, uh, the experience and hasn't taken any hits hits yet. Um, so, if DeSantis is flaming out, it doesn't mean that Trump can't be beaten, but it it certainly increases Trump's odds some more. I think. So, do you think there is the the veep stakes between Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy right now? Is Nikki Haley out of that picture? I don't think she's out of the picture. I think all, all three of those would be would be possibilities, and um, you know some other more more mega ish uh, figures who are close to Trump. But um, th- this is, is this is something that would be interesting to watch. Is just how when when we really really rubber hits the road and we're getting closer to people caucusing and, and voting, how much more aggressive at all, you know, is a Tim Scott or a Vivek or or a Nikki Haley uh, against Trump, knowing. Huh? You know what? If he makes it, and the odds are he does, maybe uh, I'll, I'll be his VIP, VIP selection. Did it hurt Mike Pence? Uh, what? Being vice president. 
I don't think it hurt him. I, I think clearly the, the end hurt him. But, you know, he, he was going to have trouble being reelected governor of Indiana. And then he held a major constitutional office and was at the center of power for four years. Uh, my view did absolutely the right thing on January 6th. And his, his standing among Republicans has been plummeting ever since. So it just shows doing the right thing does not necessarily uh, benefit your political career that we were we were aware of this I think for for a long time but this is a pretty uh, pretty stark example of it. Well, we'll see if there is a Republican who can create the kind of coalition that RFK Jr is uh, working like crazy to put together right mm-hmm. now because you have people from very different philosophical backgrounds and RFK Jr's message is resonating with them including some Fox viewers, and yeah, he, so he, he, he is he, touching on certain things that that they they like what they're hearing. Yeah, he was he was out at Freedom Fest, you know, working that crowd, most most of whom aren't Democrats. And I think if there's an independent candidate who would be um, have some viability, I think it's basically it are just the way our system works, it's impossible. But th- this RFK Jr. would be a, a, a more uh, potent independent candidate than a Joe Manchin or a John Hunter. Yeah, no, and, it, and I know you like the boring, but I don't think boring candidates uh, poke through in the no, third party side. Rich Lowry, thank you so much. We'll be looking for that article on DeSantis. Thank you, dear. It's Brian Kilmeade From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Okay, now I may be completely biased here, and we may have to touch on this a little later at some point or another. As you know, I am the mother of a French bulldog, Lemmy. That bulldog inspired Cat Timp to get a French bulldog, which inspired Greg Gutfeld to get a French bulldog. Joe Biden needs to replace his German shepherds with French bulldogs. You are welcome. It's Brian Kilmeade, Charm Kennedy. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Three words. Three words that will sum up this hour. Hot cougar bitches. If you know, you know. Until then, let's make your money make money. Let us not be afraid of that. Let's embrace the creative force of capitalism with David Bonson, who happens to be the founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group. They handle trillions of dollars in party cash. Some of that could be yours if you listen intently. David Bonson, welcome back to The Brian Kilmeade Show. If I haven't introduced myself, I am Kennedy. Hello, Kennedy. It is wonderful to be with you. I love that term, party cash. Yeah, that's right. Because that's what we're going to do with it because it's our cash. Uh, taxation is theft. So how how do we make more money in an economy that is very, very strange? Because if you go to the grocery store – and please explain this to me because none of it – I don't remember living through an economic time like this where you hear that we have record unemployment. You hear that the housing market really hasn't gone down, although interest rates – are going up. You hear that consumer confidence is high. 
yet when we go to the grocery store, we're not paying 8% more. It feels like we're paying 50% more for things we tend to buy every single day. So people are hurting, things are expensive, but we're being told everything is great. What's the truth? Um, I think that the truth is neither that things are terrible or that things are all wonderful. And I would, if I were running for president right now as an incumbent, I would not try to make a uh, slogan out of my last name and economics as a campaign theme. Uh, You can do that when you get 4% real GDP growth, meaning economic growth, Mm -hmm. which doesn't lie. And no one has to ask if we're having it or not. You remember that old uh, line? It was a judge about pornography. He knows. I know it when I see it. And I'd like to see some more of it just so I know what I'm looking at because it's disgusting. My advice to my friends on the right is don't claim the economy is doing terribly when people are not going to say that it is. Usually that's wages and jobs. Corporate profits play into that, too. But to my friends on the left, who I don't have many, um, I would not claim the economy is doing great and swimmingly wonderful when it isn't. The issue is that we are getting no growth for 15 years. This didn't start with Biden. It started the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. We've been averaging about 1.5% real economic growth, which is less than half what we've averaged since World War II. It's unacceptable. We're muddling by. We're not in a recession right now. We may go into one. But um, I think that we do not have the productivity as a nation that we're capable of. All right. So what are people doing if they're not producing things? What are they doing and is it sustainable? Well, that's in a, that's a very good question because I am worried that, you know, factory construction is up 77% year over year. After you build a lot of new factories, you got to get a lot of new equipment. And after you get a lot of new equipment, you got to get more people to run it. I'm worried about the last part. Are we going to get the people to show up? So biggest reason why I think this electric vehicle thing is a joke is there's no way they're going to get the people to go build them and get, manufacture the batteries. We don't have the labor force right now necessary to fix the economy. It's a cultural problem. So everybody loves to sit around and look for whoever is president, Republican, Democrat, fix the world. We sort of deify the Fed presidency. We deify the Federal Reserve. Oh, God, we should end the Federal Reserve. Well, we should. I'm we, not wrong there. But before we end it, maybe we should just stop deifying it. Let's baby steps here. But yeah, I. Okay, I, so, so don't deify, audit, then end. Yeah, I don't think, by the way, the audit thing is, is going to bore a lot of people. My view on the, on the Federal Reserve, because this is what people really want us to talk about, and you and I should talk about this. Um, if the Federal Reserve just functioned as a lender of last resort, a late 1800 style, what Bagot, an economist, said, nobody would have a problem with the Fed. You wouldn't, and I know how you feel about the Fed. You wouldn't have a problem with the Fed if they were just a lender of last resort. But we asked them to go give everyone a job. We asked them to make sure that there was price stability. They haven't done either for 100 years. So basically, the Fed is functioning now in the last 15 years off of a mandate that is even supercharged from there. Uh, run the whole economy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, It's um, not just a central bank. No, no, no. They're there to smooth out the business cycle where I believe people like you and I, who come from a very similar background in terms of our view of how society ought to be organized, we don't need a central bank to do that. But I don't have a problem with the lender of last resort, and that's where some of my far libertarian friends don't fully agree with me. I um I was lucky enough to be part of a, an off-the-record media event with RFK Jr., and I asked him if he would like to end the Fed. Yeah. But I can't tell you what he said because it was off the record. <laughs> yeah, understood. Uh, but he, you have people who they're still hurting, and sure. they're they're people who are working are working really hard, 
how do you make extra money when things are so much more expensive? Like what are some practical side hustles? Oh, that, I, I think that um, we look, it's, it's difficult because in technology where you've had most of the layoffs, these are people that were overpaid and overhired and uh, pampered. Pro- pro- pampered, definitely. Well, they were infantilized. I mean, they were giving them video games and the cafeteria. These amenities that these people had in their offices that they don't even go to is stunning. But I think you're more talking about blue-collar workers, Rust Belt. I think it's going to take years to have a certain degree of onshoring and reshoring that takes place. But again, I want to be clear because I don't think politics is the messiah here. Not all of this is bad policy. I mean, we have cultural issues we have to fix. Out, fix. FedEx and, and UPS and some of the companies that need to hire drivers, they can't hire enough people and they want to because they can't pass a drug test. I mean, you have things like that going on. So we have cultural so it's, issues it's a also. regulatory environment. And it, it also – I place a lot of blame, especially in – like I just visited Memphis. I did a podcast about this. I've, I haven't seen it for 30 years. I haven't spent any quality time there. I, I've visited for a day or two, but I loved that city so much when I went in 1993. Yeah. And I want to love that city so much. But it is a city in a death loop. And yeah. so I'm looking like how do you make it better and who do you blame? Because it can't just be – Politics. It can't just be policy because there are other parts of the state that are absolutely thriving. So then, you know, of course, we we blame the regulatory state. We blame government bureaucracy, but also unions. Well, you and I were at the same event in Memphis, and I was there for the the first time since the 90s as well. And my company opened an office in Nashville, not too far from Memphis, two years ago. And Nashville is maybe the fastest growing city in America. And it's absolutely – I had an office there in the 90s. I went back, and I didn't think it was the same city. It's cosmopolitan. There's a lot of energy. There's a ton of jobs. There's construction, blue-collar, white-collar. Nashville's thriving. Memphis is not. So, yeah, it can't be the same state. They're, They're both in the same state can't be policies from the state it, they're both in the same country it can't be the federal government how do you explain some of it i think there are different cultural phenomena and also we have to accept as free marketeers uh markets are complicated and this idea that sometimes you just simply change one policy and all of a sudden everything gets better right away it doesn't work that way um i think that there are a number of social and cultural things that are broken in memphis they'll take longer to fix Nashville right now has got a positive feedback loop. And then when things go well for a city, they go really well because then more and more people move. I mean, half of Franklin, Tennessee is refugee Californians at this point. Absolutely. I was was looking at property in Franklin, Tennessee. The prices were no different than California. No, no. Like if if you're looking at something in like Calabasas or Thousand Oaks, it's really no different than Franklin. And now, that's right. Yeah, and it, and similar, uh, we used to call Scottsdale the Newport Beach of Phoenix. I live in Newport Beach, California. And the fact of the matter is, Scottsdale now is just as expensive as Orange County, California. So these cities kind of catch up with their um, pricing. But then just as a city can really uh, get a positive feedback loop quickly, it can go the other way. You look at Seattle and San Francisco. I was looking at the home price data yesterday. Year over year, home prices are down half of a percent. Uh, it's kind of just flat on the year. And I want to I make a comment on that in a second. But Se- Seattle's down over 11%. San Francisco's down over 11%. 
So, see, housing like weather is not a national thing. It, 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 it behaves differently in different places. Seattle was a hot place to live for a long time. No pun I lived intended. There. No, I lived there in the 90s. Moved there in oh. 1997 and had a house there until 2002. I loved it. I On like fire. Incredible quality of life. Quality of life, jobs, economic growth, vitality. All those things have reversed. I uh, can't even talk about Portland because it's so depressing. That's where I'm from. And, and, and again, Portland growing up was such a wonderfully kept secret from so much of the country. But people who would visit, especially in the summer, they could not believe a city like that existed on the river, a view of Mount Hood. You know, traffic was moderate. You know, things seemed to function. There were businesses. There were eateries. There was technology. So much of that in one place. And the city just culturally exploded and and now it's supernovaed and it's turning into a black hole. And they're not worried about it. They're willing to let it happen. They did not get killed. They committed suicide as a city in a lot of ways. I have clients That's a great description. I have clients have been there thirty years, have moved everything out, so they're never ever going back. And and you don't necessarily hear that in every place. I mean, look, New York <laughs> we're, I'm here half of the time. It's back to normal in a lot of ways, right? I mean, there's a lot of energy back on the streets. In Portland, it's still dead, and I think that's largely just a byproduct of what some of these social and cultural decisions that these cities have chosen. Yeah, so that's true because they haven't done in Memphis what they're doing in Portland. And there's what I saw in Memphis, especially reading about it afterward, there was a big dis- disconnect between the entrepreneurs who want to develop the, the riverfront and and build land bridges and things like that, and the very poor, underemployed, over-incarcerated people who grew up and live there who feel they've been completely abandoned. And I'd like to add it's multiracial. Yes. And so the, the, this is not a problem just in black America, brown America. The, there's a significant white poverty problem in Memphis, and um, I do think that there are a lot of uh, family, cultural, social issues and decisions that are at the root of a lot of that. All right. So we have we still have quite a few areas to fix. I want to get into housing a little bit more. Can you stay for another segment? Providence. Uh, This is my name is Kennedy and I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade on the Brian Kilmeade show, which you are listening to right now. We will be back with David Bonson in moments. Learning something new every day on the Brian Kilmeade show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Kennedy in for Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Brian, as you know, very bravely in Ukraine for that yearly Burisma board meeting he likes to attend. He gets a handsome salary. Uh, not necessarily an energy expert. They just they really like having him around. So, you know, hey, I will I will benefit from his travel and diligence. And David Bonson, the um, I'm not going to call him an economist because that's too pretentious. <laughs> no, he is the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group. And we're talking about the economy. We're talking about the weirdness in different cities, the housing market, what's going well, what's not going well, whether or not we're going to have a soft landing. Is this Fed, is this president, are they capable of shepherding the economy and creating economic growth? Well, nobody is capable 
of stewarding the economy to a perfect soft landing. It isn't just that this Fed can or this president can't. I don't believe any human can because the economy is a complex, multivariant thing with, in our country, 330 million people. They're all acting independently of different tastes, preferences, incentives, different supply, demand. This idea that we can centrally plan the economy and that if the Fed turns this knob here, turns this knob there, they can make it all perfect – it's just not the way economics works. And I don't say that in a partisan standpoint. I don't want a Republican person to manage the economy either. So, um, look, this thing with housing is something I really uh, have a hobby about. I wrote a book about the financial crisis. I believe that uh, most of our narratives about that and housing crisis in 08 were really, really wrong. But, but when people say housing is weak, I think what they mean is that housing prices aren't going up 20 percent a year. What in the world makes people think that would be a good thing? Because they've they've experienced that for so long. And I think that's why 2008 was such a shock to people, because especially for first-time homebuyers, they had no concept of what it meant to be underwater, you know, with these, these low-interest mortgages. So they just assumed that they would have to pay nothing, yeah. show no documentation for it, and their asset would, you know, double or triple every 10 years. I think right now a big part of the problem is boomers, not people that were buying houses they couldn't afford in 2005. I mean, the problem is always boomers. Well, Can we be can... honest here, fellow <laughs> Gen Xer? Yes. Uh, the most underrated generation of uh, Gen X agrees with you. Yeah, But housing is weak when there's no transactions. And, people, and housing being basically kind of flat in pricing – that's not a good thing when only 20% of the transactions are happening. Why is that? Because nobody wants to sell that as a 3% mortgage and go buy a bigger and better home they can now afford. They've kind of climbed the ladder a little, and they're going to have to trade a 3% mortgage for a 6 or 7% mortgage. They're not going to do I don't do want it. to do that. Nobody does. You, uh, By the way, of 92% of Americans that have a mortgage have it at less than 6%, and 64% of them have them at less than 4%. OK, they're not going to do it. They're just going to sit still. But meanwhile, if you're a seller, are you anxious to give a price up that is 10, 20 percent lower than you knew your friends were getting a year ago? So they're just going to sit still because everybody knows so, the Fed's going to end up cutting. And so, so they're what, just going to okay, wait. So we're now hearing that the Fed is going to raise interest rates a quarter point again this week. Right. What effect will that have on this nebulous zone? Well, the um, interest rate is going to go up a quarter point, and it's been priced in for about a month. Mortgages are sitting around 7%, and what the Fed does in a few months will end up becoming more important. But I think that they're near the end. Housing at 7%, you're not going to get a lot of activity happening. Now, look, everyone says, oh, back in the 70s, 80s, people were buying at 12%. That's not going to happen again. You can't what get keeps a, that from happening again? You can't get a society addicted to 2 to 3%. Money and and to reprice a monthly payment, which is all most Americans buy, is a monthly payment. To get um, a seven percent mortgage, your monthly payment relative to if it was two or three percent, the house has to come down thirty percent in value, at least twenty percent. And and so basically, right now we're just a stalemate. There's no activity. What could actually make housing more affordable is more housing, and they don't build any new housing because of these. Zoning and and environmental <laughs> restrictions. Thank you for dumping your own swear word. It's impressive. It's <laughs> it sort of technology, is. yes. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I, I would love for mortgage rates to go low. I would love for people to pay crazy amounts of money, and I would love to find a bargain. 
Yeah, but see, the thing is, Milton Friedman said this on the Donahue show in the 70s, that everyone says they hate inflation, and then you bring up their house, and they all love inflation. They all want their house price to go higher. Of course. Um, I don't really know why people have no intention of selling their house, care what it's worth. I think it's very odd. I own four homes, and I've never thought once about what any of them are worth. I don't let anyone else in the house besides someone with my last name. And for the most part, it is just a place to live and enjoy different spots around the country that we are blessed to have. The notion of thinking about it in terms of what the value is doing, if if you're not planning to sell, mm-hmm. I don't understand. But what is changing it, you're talking about boomers ruining the world. Now, all of a sudden, their kids and grandkids can't afford to buy a home, and they're able-bodied and, and maybe gainfully employed. They've done okay. And they're like, yeah, I can't afford to buy a house. Or they have to go buy into a neighborhood that grandpa and grandma don't want them in. That is all of a sudden causing people to say this cult of permanently escalating housing prices is maybe not the genius we thought it was. I I do blame boomers. I blame unions. And I blame the Fed. And you brought it all together, David Bonson. (laughs) Thank you, Kennedy. Uh, This this has been uh, tremendously uplifting and enlightening. Thank you so much. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm your friend, Kennedy. Radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. It is the Brian Kilmeade show. It's Kennedy in for Brian Kilmeade. And since it is late July, it's time to get an update on your uh, your favorite romance slaying duo. And that is Hot Cougar Bitches. And you're like, oh, wait, <laughs> what is Hot Cougar Bitches? Uh, I am one half. My greater half happens to be Fox News legend Julie Banderas, who is oh taking God. time out of her her busy fitness and beauty routine and her Mensa meetings. I paused my skincare and I stopped drinking for this. <laughs> Julie, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Oh, no. Can we rename it, actually? I mean, let's just hijack the show yeah. since we did come up with our own segment without him having any say. So it's just, it's just what it, what are we called again? Hot, hot Cougar Bitches? Hot Cougar Bitches, brought to you by yeah, Nabisco. We can... <laughs> That's, we're brought, wait, Nabisco is our sponsor? I didn't know we got a sponsor. That's so exciting. <laughs> we did. Yeah, we, we got Nabisco. We got High C. It was between High C and Tang, uh, but we went with High C because the high, highest C is Cougar. Right. Well, we did we did approach Bud Light, but they weren't interested in us. We weren't their type. So, <laughs> so we're They're going like, with You're too dudes. successful, and we are cratering. <laughs> Therefore, we can't throw whatever remaining money we have at the at the HCB. We also have natural breasts. Well, at least I, I do mean, it. I, I do it in my I, freezer. I think you do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. So we have natural uteruses. I don't know. Yeah, uteri. Yeah, a lot of people come up to me like, oh, my gosh, Kennedy, succulent. Are they real? And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Yeah, they are, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Same here. Um, Yeah, no, I think that's that's, Peter's producer is going to be very thrilled with our new segment (laughs) slash show. (laughs) Brian's going to come back, and he's going to have no show, and he's going to have sponsors by, like, you know, different sponsors that he doesn't already have. No, it's Tempur-Pedic mattresses. um, Right. Soul Glow, High C, Nabisco, 
Uh, we're we're just printing money here, Julie Banderas and I. So there was, it's interesting, Julie, because obviously during the pandemic we were all, especially in lockdown states like New York and California, not those free yep. states like Utah and Florida, uh, but right. we were uh, the high school counselor, the short order cook, the teacher, the principal, yep. the disciplinarian to our children, and so for a lot of moms. That also went hand in hand with a concept known as rosé all day. Well, I love yes. the New York Post. I'm a fan of the publication. It is the official publication of Hot Cougar Bitches and um, and the Kennedalian <laughs> Report. Actually, I yep. think. Yeah. So, but yep. there was there was an article why it's time to change our mommy wine culture. Uh, do you feel that this is the patriarchy? shaming moms who are honest about what they consume. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you know my motto, but AA is for quitters. And I'm a mom and I don't quit. My kids are still here. They were here through the pandemic and they're not going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, by the time they get to college, then maybe I'll consider turning to another vice. But until then, I'm not giving up my wine. I will say this. I have dialed back my drinking since the pandemic because pandemic I was homeschooling, and I had a pre-K student, a first grader, and a third grader. So it was an absolute nightmare. It was a nightmare. So every single day, my daughter actually went to the refrigerator. I thought she was going to start drinking. But in fact, she would bring me a bottle of wine and just set it down in front of me. And every day that time got earlier and earlier. Like it started at two or three. By by like month three, it was like 10 in the morning. (laughs) And and let's let's just – the the pandemic – lasted more than three months so by, by the time 2022 rolled around uh julie banderas was on a propofol drip uh, dr <laughs> conrad murray was on prison release because they were just letting people out he went straight to her house and it was the oh God, uh, the banderas speedball yes absolutely that was amazing um yeah no i mean you don't need iv for like actual medications there's a lot of different uses for um, for intravenous fluids, you know, like I would get dehydrated. I remember once I actually did end up in the hospital, though, for not drinking enough water. And I'm like, I don't need water. You know what I need? <laughs> Can't you do some kind of intravenous thing? Where No, because I tried a um, water cleanse. You ever heard of those? No, that sounds horrible. I actually, no, I know. But supposedly it shrinks your organs and it, it's like really good for you. If you if you yeah, there's scientists and doctors. That so do you, and so do you only drink water or do you not drink yes. any water at all? You think, no, you only drink water. For you do not long? consume any foods. Well, it depends. Like I did it for five. But by Days? day three, I could hardly walk. I sure did. But by day three, it was kind of like I wanted to do like a power cleanse because of all the alcohol I'd been drinking and weight I put on during the pandemic. I don't know about you, but I put on like 20 pounds. I mean, I never looked better. I looked so good. I'm just kidding. No, it was awful. And it didn't matter what I did. I I, know I tried. I had to do Noom and that didn't work. I felt like Noom gave me an eating disorder. Yeah. Noom was popular by a lot of people, but no, I just did it didn't a, work. You just well, became obsessed with what you ate. It's like, is this a green food? Can I have more celery? I'm so hungry and mad at myself. Am I doing it right? <laughs> yeah, that's it's too much pressure. So that's why liquid diets work best for me. Like, for example, during the pandemic, it was alcohol only. And then I decided to go with water only because I don't cook. So it's like, you know, having to prepare foods is a pain in the ass. So I'd rather just go with fluids. So, yeah, but, anyway, but Tito's, I went with and, water. Tito's and soda, you know, club soda <laughs> yeah. is water. So technically, 
you you are strictly adhering to your liquid diet. Yeah, no. When I when I have a, anything that's mixed with seltzer or club soda, that's hydrating for me. So that's why I couldn't understand why the doctors, when I finally went in day five, they were like, you're dehydrated. I'm like, what? I've been drinking for months. I don't understand how this is possible. It's only been five days of water. But anyway, so they had to put me on uh, IV fluids, and I stayed off uh, water for a while. So So who knew that all the alcohol drinking would not be the thing that landed me in the hospital? It was too much water. That's interesting. That's a lesson for you. There's a a term for that, isn't it? Isn't it like hyperhidrosis or something like that? Yeah, they just told me I was dehydrated. They didn't use such a fancy word. I wonder if Um, you just, I think what happens is if you only drink water and no salt, you you wash the electrolytes out of your blood and yeah you can get really really sick so i'm not i'm not endorsing or co-signing the water diet unless no they say you're supposed to have like some chicken broth or vegetable broth and all that but by day five once i started having it it was too late i was too dehydrated so yeah but do do google it if you're listening or kennedy you just google a water cleanse i'm telling you the benefits are amazing i just didn't do it right i'm like all you, you didn't google a water cleanse before you did it I did, I did, I did. It's just that I didn't include include sodium. You're right. Like I didn't do, I, I didn't do any kind of sodium whatsoever. I went from drinking nothing but wine to water, and my body was like, "What the hell are you doing?" So um, I went straight back to wine right after that. So Julia, let me ask you this because you know we're we're cougars about town. We're always yeah. surveying the landscape. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. We we know what's going on. You just aged us so badly just by saying the words about town. <laughs> but cool. That's correct. Uh-oh. You know, we're we're in top hands, uh, top hats uh-huh. and garter belts. That's a, it's a great look. So if you look yep. at the if you look at the presidential candidates, uh and you mm. can include Nikki Haley in there. Okay. Who who is the most and let's pretend all of them are single. Who is who are the top three most dateable presidential candidates for you? If they were single, I have to say that I would like Ron DeSantis. Where where did he go to college? Didn't he go to the Naval Academy? The, yeah, but I thought he maybe went to Yale or the Ivy League school. Yeah, he just... does seem like an Ivy Leaguer, like a secret Ivy Leaguer. Like maybe yeah, he's I... got a little bit of hillbilly, but uh, he, he, yeah. he, he got polished at the fancy lad academy. Yeah, he went to Harvard, by the way. I knew it. He went to Yale and Harvard. He went to Harvard and um, Yale. Yeah, see, that's a turn-on to me, like Ivy Leaguers. I never dated one. Well, actually, yeah, no. Um, no, I never dated one, but that was always my dream. So I'd go for Ron DeSantis. I also discovered recently his age, which makes me feel like shit, because can I say that? Actually, He's no, you can't, but thank you for asking after the fact. That was uh, <laughs> that was very conscientious, <laughs> Julie. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone in the control room. I apologize. And we're um, on the air. Welcome back to the Brian <laughs> Kilmeade Show. Wait, so in all seriousness, you know how old he is? 47. Which this really is, he's 44. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, seriously, he's 44. What the hell? I mean, first of all, that not only makes me feel so old, but like imagine running for president at the age of 44. That's impressive. So I'm very impressed by him. He's an overachiever. I like that. He also, oh, one other thing I really like about him, he has a full head of hair. I know it's the little things as a cougar these days that you really appreciate when any man exudes signs of youth, you know, like hair. No, but I I uh, have to say, I like the shaved head look. 
Like when, oh, when you, you just go for it and you shave the whole thing, like, yeah, screw it. Wait, because you're balding, you're, you're yeah, saying? Yeah, that's fine. I would, no I would much choice. rather see that than, right. um, than a mullet ponytail on a bald guy. With like specks of hair in yeah. the front? Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. If you're going to go that thin, you might as well just shave it all off. Just shave it I off. won't date you, but I respect that. <laughs> I just really like hair, you know, in the right places, of course. Uh, so, so Vivek like, Ramaswamy is your second because he's also got a great head of hair. He does have a good head of hair, but not, um, I mean, dating-wise, not so much my type. Um, so I would date I Tim Scott. Women, yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about if we were into women. Not mm-hmm. that I am, but if I was, um, I do like Nikki Haley. I, no, I actually like, like Nikki Haley as a presidential candidate. I wouldn't want to get with her or anything, but I like Nikki Haley. You want to use as her for her power, but you don't want it to get so awkward that you can't call right. and ask her for a favor. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And she's smart. You know, it's nice to have a smart woman uh, running for office. It would be, you know, it'd be if she doesn't become the presidential ticket, you know, a vice presidential. You know, they everybody was saying, Ron, not to put the woman on the VP spot because she is she's just as qualified. Oh, to be sure. The president. Well, so but is Tim Ron, Scott. So is Vivek. But they're going to be VP yeah. candidates probably. No, but I have to say a Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley. I've been saying this for two years, three years now. I could see that as a powerful ticket. Anything but Kamala Harris. It pretty much goes. So actually, yeah. I should run. ABK, anything but Kamala. I, I don't Please. disagree with you there. I, I think... And I'm not a woman hater. I don't hate on women. I always like to empower women. And, but Kamala Harris is seriously one of the dumbest women I've ever seen in politics. And it's just, it's miraculous that she's still even, that she hasn't been pulled off the job. And the fact that Joe Biden thinks that by bringing her back in, that's going to help his chances. She's like, she's, she's like his kryptonite. He needs to run away from her. I don't know who else to grab, but not her. Yeah, and, and definitely. Warren. Yeah. Well, so if you had to choose a life partner, Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris, who would you choose? Oh, a life partner? I'd go with anybody, Kamala. Could you imagine waking up to that laugh or like at night drinking and listening to that laugh? Because you know she probably is one of those drinkers that laughs her head off whenever she drinks. So, no, I'll go with an Elizabeth Warren. I don't mind. I'll 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 join a native Indian tribe for her. <laughs> and that's the exact I mean, kind of political correctness we desire from Julie Banderas. <laughs> thank you for taking the time on Hot Cougar Bitches Island. I love you. I love, I love you. you. So, so I didn't get voted off. Never. No. Not you're, yet. Okay. No. <laughs> you're the you're the chiefress. Um, no, no. You're the chief, I, and I'm I'm just your sidekick. All right. Well, uh, you can ride my sidecar anytime. Julie Banderas, okay, I adore you. I love you. I'll see you soon. Love you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. We have Big Jim Fela coming up with a big announcement in moments. Stay with us. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's practically a doctor. His name is Jimmy Fallon. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Kennedy sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Uh, Jimmy, is it true that you are the one who's giving Hunter Biden his legal advice? (laughs) He'd be in better shape if I was. I think you're right. 
When you think of how many run-ins I've had with the court system, just dating back, it, getting past my gambling years, because a lot of that was under an alias or, a th- you know what I mean? But if you what were to was talk your alias? Just about, well, we'll get there, okay? This is a much bigger <laughs> radio show than mine. I speak a lot more freely on my show because it has about a tenth of the audience of Kill Meads. I'll tell you anything on my show. If you guys want to tune in to Fox Across America from noon to three, you know, if radio shows are boats, okay, yep. Kill Mead is like uh, a Viking cruise ship. Mm-hmm. I'm the inflatable raft from Captain Phillips. I'm just a Somali pirate. <laughs> I am the captain now from 12 to three. But right now we're on Kill Mead show. So here's the thing. I did have a lot of run-ins in court and beat. As a cab driver, I beat a lot of tickets, a lot of traffic tickets, a lot of parking tickets. So maybe he would take some advice from me. But what's very interesting about this, uh, I, I think anyway, at a street level of analysis, is the fact that his attorneys pulled a little chicanery last night, made like a I prank love, call. Yeah, like, oh, hi, uh, <laughs> we're, we're calling from the judge. And the judge said, you have to take your thing down. Like, oh, God, the judge is calling. Well, this is official. This is one of the branches of government that's not us. <laughs> take it down right now, guys. What's, what's next? Are they going to send their kids in there stacked on top of each other in a trench coat to look like an adult? <laughs> like it's a cartoon? There's four children, and one of them's wearing glasses and a hat at the top of this pile. Come on, Biden legal team, a scam. But you know what? Up until now, you've seen the actions of somebody who knew mm-hmm. the fix was in. Yep. Now they're a little concerned. I mean, you don't start making prank phone calls because you think we're on autopilot the rest of the way. That's a weird Hail Mary. I hope the judge takes the plea deal away. Oh, wouldn't it be great? I think we've learned too much just in the last couple weeks yep. about what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And not only the the happening but the intention behind it one and two the two biggest problems facing our country right now is we have no collective buy-in to the integrity of anything the last two uh parties to lose a major presidential election claimed it was stolen you can call what trump did the big lie but how do you differentiate that from what the democrats did hillary did the exact same thing and and by the way the biden team Uh was prepared with an army of lawyers oh, yeah. to contest the election results if they, in fact, lost. Yes. So it would really it would really benefit America if we had an investigation legitimately into election integrity, just the same as an investigation into the Bidens at this point. If, in fact, it cleared them, so be it. That would be a win for all of us. Did, did Democrats ever have an issue with electronic voting? Oh, we do play a montage on my show. It's a minute and 50 seconds long. It ends with Kamala Harris saying the election machines were so hackable she held a demonstration for her team just to show them how easy it was. Like, come on, dude. But that's, you know, the double standard so we're living in. She was Sidney Powell before <laughs> Kamala Powell was, was releasing Kraken. Sydney was just a throwback Thursday Kamala. When you really boil it down. Yeah. Where where the hell do we go from here? I mean, where do we go with the Bidens? Like the Hunter problem doesn't go away. Guys like that and Jimmy, you've known some dirtbags. Oh. They don't they 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 may follow the rules. They may put on a suit. They may be polite for a moment, but they cannot. The appetites outweigh the decency. Yeah, and there's no question there. These are these are problematic people. The other issue is too, uh, the Republicans with the power of impeachment, the majority in the House aren't going to let it go away and they shouldn't let it go away. But back to your point of knowing dirtbags. Yes, I do. And I'm even willing to hang out with them when they're guest hosting the Brian Kilmeade show. <laughs> That's the nice thing about me. It's not like I know Derpig. I shun them. Like, I embrace them. I am the Garth Brooks of cable news. I have friends in low places. Yeah. So low, he was thinking about having a telethon for me. <laughs> That's a real friend. Please listen to Jimmy Fela, Fox Across America, Fox News Radio, noon to three in the east, nine to noon in the west. 
Uh, Jimmy Fallon, Laughs and Liberty, going to Henderson, Nevada next month. See you there. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. I am not Brian Kilmeade. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. As you know, Brian has shared with you on uh, a few very tender and sentimental occasions. When he returns next week, he is going to be Brianna Kilmeade. He is very, very bravely transitioning. He is a hero, and we need to support her when Brianna returns. Kennedy in for Brian. Is the deep state protecting Hunter Biden from accountability? And is whatever you conceive of the deep state actually running the country? It is a completely fair idea. Uh, What used to be the stuff of conspiracy theory has realized in so many stories, in so many ways, that it is impossible to turn away from the idea that there are people who've been working in the government for a long time, who have amassed a lot of power, who realize that administrations, elected bureaucrats come and go, uh, but there is a collection of them who, it seems, have the real power to prosecute or shield whomever they want to stay in power. Is that what we are seeing with Hunter Biden? Uh, The laptop story, the government and various agencies working with big tech in order to silence that story and anyone who tried to disseminate it. And were there deep staters in the higher reaches of government who were pulling the strings and getting institutions like the IRS and the FBI to do their bidding and to have influence over outcomes. So the stories about Hunter uh, didn't tank the administration. That is very possible. And uh, there's a new article from Eli Lake, who happens to be a contributing editor at Commentary Magazine. He's also a columnist for the New York Sun. He hosts the Re-Education Podcast, and uh, he has a free press article right now, Hunter Biden and the Deep State. Eli Lake, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Kennedy. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you. We haven't spoken in some time, but I I thought you wrote a really wonderful article because a term like Deep State, it it is very easy, as you point out, to apply any meaning to that you want. Is that an accurate description of the players in the system who are really running government? And if not, how would you describe it? Well, you know, we in America have probably to go back to understand what an American deep state is. You have to go back about 50 years to the church committee. who was a very brave senator um, who managed to hold a series of hearings and produce a final report that exposed a series of programs from the FBI, the CIA, the National Security Agency, and elements of the military, which were state secrets at the time. Um, this is pre-1975, but were, you know, there was zero oversight. Members of Congress, and in some cases, even the elected president didn't know, for example, that like the CIA was opening 
mail from the Soviet bloc, which was, you know, a federal crime, but they were doing it. And there was no authorization really for them to do it. Or the classic would be something known as MK Ultra, which was the CIA's series of mind control experiments involving LSD. That really happened. And it's unclear that anybody in the White House at the time knew about it or knew the full extent of it and, and how they were testing on human subjects. So that's the history of the concept in the United States. When you apply the concept of deep state, say, overseas, what you're referring to is a government like Turkey, uh, which, you know, nominally has an elected, you know, leader uh, and a parliament, but the real power is the unelected military or Pakistan or Egypt or countries like that. So it is where you have a more powerful state that is sort of in the shadows, a deeper state, if you will. Now, does America have a deep state? It's not the same as you would say to something like Turkey, because there are moments such as the Church Committee, but you can think of more recent moments like when the Senate Intelligence Committee published reports on CIA in black site interrogations and so forth, where there are kind of we could call it spasms of accountability. And there have also been reforms, such as the creation of a surveillance court so that you would no longer have lawless surveillance of American citizens. So that brings us up to today. And I think the term deep state is not great because it implies almost a kind of hive mind, like there is a kind of singular agenda of uh, interlocking, interlocking powerful institutions. Sometimes people include the media in it and things like that. And I would say that the reason that that's not right is because like any institution, the secret element of our government is comprised of human beings. There are good human beings, there are good people and bad people. There are rule followers and rule breakers. And what we've seen is that because of whistleblowers, in the case of the Hunter Biden, uh, what I call a scandalabra, because there's so many elements. And that, by the way, such a wonderful portmanteau. Scandalabra is is such a great term. Um, Anyone who reads that wishes they had thought of it it themselves. Oh, thank you, Kennedy. That's very nice. But I guess what I'd say is that we have these whistleblowers from the IRS. We have FBI whistleblowers. We have inspectors general, people like Michael Horowitz of the Justice Department, or more recently, John Durham, who was a special counsel and his career was spent as a U.S. attorney. Well, these people would be, in a certain sense, members of this deep state, but yet they understood that they had an obligation to call out what they saw was improper behavior, in some cases, behavior that was violating the law, or favoritism in the case of the IRS investigation. And now Congress is aware of it, and they're, you know, we'll see what happens, but you have at least Republicans in that alternative looking to try to hold these institutions and the individuals accountable, up to and including the Attorney General Merrick Garland, who has contradicted the, um, you know, what I would say is the confirmed uh, story or whistle of these whistleblowers from the IRS. So I don't like to use the term sometimes deep state because it implies almost like you're black pill. There's nothing you can do. The deep state is so powerful that they'll, they'll get what they want. But that's not true. It is worth fighting. It is worth electing people that will hold these institutions accountable. There are whistleblowers who are doing the right thing at great personal risk. And so that makes it a lot more complicated. I do think it's absolutely fair, though, to say that there is an element of the United States government that has become extremely powerful, that operates with very little oversight, and is capable of really pulling the wool over the American people's eyes. And we saw this with this Hunter Biden laptop. The FBI knew the laptop was real and yet allowed for social media companies to believe that the stories in the New York Post before the 2020 election were part of some sort of Russian disinformation plan. 
Well, that's absolutely atrocious. And I'm upset that it's taken this long for the real truth to get out. But at least the truth is getting out. And if we had a kind of all-powerful deep state, we would never really know just uh, the sort of chicanery and deceptions of uh, the FBI in the run-up to the 2020 election. And they, the FBI did know. And they were asked pointedly whether or not they knew the laptop was real before the election. Uh, one FBI yeah. agent started to say, yeah, we do. And the other said, no comment. And then you write about right. and then Laura... they huddled and they said, from now on, when we're asked if we know the laptop is real, the answer is no comment. I mean, that's you know amazing, right? <laughs> yes, it's it's a way of shielding themselves from this very obvious guilt because they were working in concert with Twitter and obviously other tech companies. We only know about what was happening at Twitter and the involvement because of the Twitter files. But you yep. have and, – and that's only part of it. But when you marry that with Russiagate, what are you left with? What do you get? What impression can you take away from elements of this government? Well, here's one takeaway. In 2016 and 2017, after Donald Trump wins the election, there was a calculation that was made by lots and lots of people in the media, in the permanent government. You could say maybe the administrative state that the, the prospect of, of Trump's presidency was such a grave threat to our country that it justified doing things and taking steps that they would never normally have taken. And that is, I think, how we saw the beginnings of these kinds of abuses. The FBI, I think, if this had been a normal kind of election or something and a Republican had won and the Republican's opponent had paid for opposition research that tried to paint that person as a, a pawn of the Russians, it would have been seen as for what it was. That's, a, that's kind of, you know, dirty politics. But it would not have become part of the official narrative that the you know, mainstream media treating it like it was Watergate. More importantly, you wouldn't have had the FBI pretending, as James Comey did in 2017 and his deputy Andrew McCabe did later, that this was an open question as to whether or not the president was a Russian agent when not only did they have no evidence that he was, it was they were not, they were turning up you know no evidence that he was that there was anything to this, but they had plenty of evidence that the Steele dossier that this was sort of originally sort of put out and paid for by the Hillary Clinton campaign was itself disinformation. So, you know that calculations and we will probably never know exactly why Comey decided to pretend that this was all very legitimate. All of that. I think can be explained by this view that they were so scared of Trump, they were willing to do things like lie to the American people and hold a duly elected president in a kind of, you know, constant state of contempt or, or not even contempt, but like suspicion that he may in fact be this traitor based purely on like a dirty political trick. That is a terrible thing that happened, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It came out, of, I think, because people kind of panicked and they were frightened. And this is an ex almost an example of you could to kind of look at it psychologically of an extreme anxiety that was brought about by the election of a candidate they thought they had no chance of winning. And, and a candidate they couldn't control. And I guess that's yes. what's so attractive about this for limited government libertarians like me is I may not agree with most people who are elected president for one reason or another, but there are takeaways from the Trump presidency that I would like to see replicated. And and that is 
I would like to see more people run and more people from either party secure the nomination that make that national security state nervous. These people who are so unorthodox, who are willing to take government apart and look at it in a very different way, who are not controllable, I would like to see people like that challenge government from within because you have so many unelected, powerful people who only keep amassing more and more power. And when you look at the way law enforcement agencies interface today, unchecked, unconstitutionally, you realize that we have to make changes, but Congress is not making changes. They complain about it. They grandstand about it. But when it comes time to make meaningful reforms to the FBI, they they reauthorize the, the, the FISA Act, which, you know, gives us mass surveillance a lot of time. You're, there's a lot of truth to that, Kennedy. I think you're into something. I would say this, though. In some ways, it's already had an effect. I mean, I would say that before Donald Trump and before the era of politics that we're in, if there was a story that the FBI – and we saw this at the beginning of Trump presidency when it still was really important. The FBI is investigating a politician because they may or may not be you know, connected or have colluded or conspired with a foreign power – that would be a career killer. That would be a huge bombshell. I think that there are so millions of Americans now that if they read a story about something that the FBI is investigating, they are no longer going to assume that that investigation is on the level. That's the FBI's own damn fault. That's James Comey's fault. That's Andrew McCain's fault. They were the ones who squandered their legitimacy with at least half the country. And that itself is a real problem if you believe, as I do, that we need an FBI to do certain things that, you know, to protect us from, you know, foreign spies or, you know, organized crime and things like that. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to have legitimacy. And so it's a crisis in a sense if you're like myself. As I, I believe that the – like you, like many libertarians, the national security state is probably too big at this point and that the war on terror expanded it in ways that we need to kind of pare back. But I am not – a radical. I don't think that we should live in a world without, you know, an FBI, for example, because I think that, you know, we do have crime, we do have spies, we do have all these problems. And then the bureau needs to be above law. I mean, above partisanship. It cannot be seen as a tool of one particular party, which unfortunately is what it is today or is seen that way today. And, you know, my my other worry is it's very interesting because COVID has kind of disappeared. You know, we, we talk about the fallout from it, but we, we yeah. don't talk about the virus anymore. And, and now, you know, things that we are told were conspiracy theories um, are now actually real, appear to be very real and materializing more and more the evidence for something like the lab leak every day. I almost look at the apparatus that we don't fully understand that was created during the pandemic being as harmful long-term as the apparatus mm-hmm. that was built during the war on terror. The public health issue is huge. They have also suffered a kind of legitimacy crisis for many of the same reasons. Replace Trump in this case with COVID, the you know emergency was such that it justified things that they would never do. And Fauci is somebody who believes in a concept that's been around since Plato called the noble lie, which is that it's tolerable to tell a free country like America or Americans things that you know not to be true because 
if they knew the truth, it would be worse, and that there are certain things, that, and they couldn't possibly understand the full implications of it. You know, that is a, I think, I think that's a, that's a, that, that is going to affect Anthony Fauci at the end of his life, but he's like, it's going to affect his legacy. And it's important that we kind of always remember that these norms exist for a reason, and they're more important than ever when we are in these kinds of crisis or emergency. And I think that, you know, we have to rebuild trust in the public health as well because they've squandered a lot of it. Eli Lake, it is so wonderful to talk to you. I love the way you write. I love the way you think. Thank you for taking time on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for having me, Kennedy. Indeed. We've got much more to come, including Hunter's Fate. It's next. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Someone was upset on Twitter because I said that Brian Kilmeade is transitioning and next week he's coming back as Brianna. I'm sorry. He's coming back as Jocelyn. That's totally different. It is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Kennedy and for Brian. And uh, we were just talking about the deep state and how real it is. Laptop, Hunter Biden laptop shielding. Plus, Russiagate hoax equals deep state. I don't care who you are. You're lying if you don't admit it. So someone has to capitalize on the deep state phenomenon in order to win back the presidency. Listen to part of this latest political ad from Donald J. Trump. If I was the deep state, I would make everyone an example why you should never question a Democrat ever winning an election. I would imprison my foes. I would use my corrupt DAs and blackmailed judges to destroy you. I would make sure all crimes I ever committed never happened. I would prosecute my biggest competition. I would make sure they could never run for office ever again. If I was the deep state, I would convince everyone that Ukraine Nazis were good and women are men. If I was the deep state, I would own every politician that mattered. Oh, that is fantastic. Uh, This presidential cycle, every turn is an absolute gift. Thank you, politics gods. Uh, We return with the Hunter Biden update. Where is he? Is he in shackles every moment of it? Next. Right here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Kennedy in for Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. It is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Kennedy in for Kilmeade. We have, uh, it is Hunter Biden. Plea watch. Will the judge throw it out because of the shenanigans that have been going on over the last 24 hours? Joining me now, he's been reporting on this very ably. And he's an award-winning journalist from the New York Post. John Levine, welcome back to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Thank you for having me, Kennedy. Always fun, always fun. So exciting times. It's kind of scary how much power Hunter Biden has amassed, but also how uh, his dad has been so good about keeping Sonny Boy away from any real trouble, even though uh, he, he may have been running afoul of laws and regulations for quite some time. Right. I'm reminded of that Mel Brooks line, it's good to be the king. You know, when your dad is the king, 
you know, you can, you can, you can get out of a lot of stuff and maybe leave some of your unmentionables in the, in the West wing and they can never figure out, you know, who brought them. Yeah. <laughs> so where are we at in terms of where Hunter is at? Well, look, he's, 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 he's going to submit his plea today. That's, that's literally happening as we speak. And what I'm told is that whether the judge accepts it or not, it's mostly a formality. Generally, the judges accept the plea deals that are negotiated. I'm told by people who know more about this than me that there's not a lot of leeway for this judge, even though the judge, just what I'm seeing here, seems very disinclined to be sympathetic to Hunter's defense lawyers. I don't know that she has a lot of leeway, and I think that this plea is probably going to get accepted, and he's going he's gonna to skirt. He'll fly by with just two misdemeanors for, you know, F conclusion of the six-year probe. And even with all we've seen from the whistleblowers and, and all the evidence that has come out that this, that this case was compromised, it looks like he's just going to fly off into the sunset. Well, he is Mr. Misdemeanor. But first of all, the, the cocaine in the White House was never solved. I don't believe there aren't cameras there. I don't believe right. that yes. we don't have the detection capability to figure out who right. brought a white powdery Crazy. substance Crazy, into right? the White yeah. House. I mean, what right. if what if that were Crazy. anthrax Crazy. or something else? Right. If this was anthrax in a little baggie in the West Wing, I have a hard time thinking the Secret Service would just, well, nothing we can do here, folks. It's unknowable. I have a question for you. Did this bag have fingerprints did, or did it just appear there? Did it have – was there DNA? Was Hunter Biden tested? Was he tested? They refused to answer any of those questions. And I always tell people, it's like, I am not Sherlock Holmes. I'm not – you know, I'm not Monk if you ever watch that show. Oh, yes. But Tony Shalhoub. Great show. Great show. Yeah. But, like, let's just zoom out a little bit. Cocaine is found in the White House during a period – where a known past user, drug abuser of cocaine, is staying at the White House. Maybe we should ask that person, and maybe that, you know, that's like, maybe that person is the, is the prime suspect here. I don't know. But, like, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's a duck, you know, as the saying goes. I hate to engage in whataboutism, but I can only imagine if this happened during the, the Trump White House, what the uproar well, right. from the I mean, press corps might have been and you know there, I mean, you there would probably be a need, federal indictment looming for right. don jr There'd be a special counsel for the coke right now mm -hmm. i mean you don't even need to finish that sentence I mean, if this were trump is just the end of the sentence because we know it would be world war three maybe putin brought the cocaine and left it there as part of the as part of the steel dossier compromising material who knows who knows what fantasy madness but of course that never happened because known cocaine addicts didn't stay at the white house okay and now Trump the, was president. here's here's something else that i want to discuss and that was whether or not it's important if the president lied about being in business with his son uh let's listen to cut number two chairman james comer today says that the oversight committee excuse me has evidence that the president in the past communicated directly with foreign business associates of his son hunter biden many times curious if the White House and the president still stand behind his comment that he's never been involved and has never even uh, spoken to his son about his business. So I've been, I've been asked this question a million times. The answer is not going to change. The answer remains the same. The president ha was never in business with his son. I just don't have anything else to add. 
Okay, but the answer did change because the did change. He, Joe Biden was never adamant saying, I was never in business with my son. He has said, right. I never spoke to my son about his foreign business dealings, right. period. Those are two very different things. And, you know, she says, I've answered this a million times. The answer remains the same. That is not right. the same answer. She's lying. She, it's a calculated deception. They're changing the goalposts in real time. Because that wasn't, as you say, what she has always said. And who knows what she'll be saying in six months. Maybe it'll be my answer remains the same. Uh, Joe Biden did not accept tens of millions of dollars from Hunter's businesses. You know, who knows what the, the, the same answer will be in six months. The gradual shifting of goalposts. Look, whether this is a problem or not ultimately depends on the American people and whether they think it's a problem. It's not a crime, obviously, to lie to the press. And to lie to the American people, or a lot of politicians would be in jail, but this is a character issue. And when he runs for re-election, if that's actually happening, he's going to have to explain to the American people why he was dishonest about this. And he will be confronted by his own words on the campaign trail, and maybe you know a reporter or two will ask about it. And he's going to have to sort of square the circle and say, why did you you know explain why how, how he could say he wasn't involved when you've got Business partners now saying he would he would dial into phone conversations, you know, a dozen or two times. Is that problematic for him? You know, if, if Devin Archer testifies before the House Oversight Committee that he saw in two dozen instances, Hunter put the phone on the table, right. put it on speaker, access his dad to talk to people they were in the middle of making deals with. Is that problematic for the president? Is there plausible di- deniability there for him to say, oh, I was just saying hi to my son. I had no idea who he was with. Well, right. I mean, it really depends on what Devin Archer says in his testimony. Is he the big and, wild card here? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the most important witness to come forward in, in so far in the history of this probe. I mean, you had Tony Bobolinsky before the campaign, but this, this, is, this is someone who in many ways was much closer to the action at hand. Uh, Archer was a member of the board of Burisma alongside Hunter Biden, and they would have, he would be intimately knowledgeable about what went on with Hunter and that company and potentially Joe Biden and that company. And, uh, you know, something I'd be curious about is what Archer can say about that FBI document. Remember that from the confidential human source, which talks about how the head of Burisma has all these compromising tapes, recordings of Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, which he said he's just keeping in his pocket for a rainy day. That's that's, you know, lovely. That's, you know, (laughs) to think some some Ukrainian oligarch has this compromising material, allegedly. So I would certainly want to know that from Archer, and that's stuff that he could hopefully put some meat on the bones to. So Devin Archer has been in legal trouble himself for that $60 million uh, bond scheme where he defrauded um, Indian tribes out of that much money. So if if he comes clean and his his friends say, sources say – that he has no agenda here. He has no axe to grind. He, he doesn't seek revenge on anyone. He's just being a good citizen. But is there some benefit for him to be completely truthful? Does that help him out of any of his legal issues? Well, that, that's an underdeveloped, that's an underreported part of this saga is that the second after he testifies, he's supposed to get marched off to prison because he defrauded these Native American tribes. I don't think, I think the time for lean, I think he's done. I think he's exhausted his appeals. He's definitely getting locked up, but 
you know, there's I, I, I've heard rumors that he's trying to get a less, you know, onerous prison or, or to, to get a more comfortable confinement. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's 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 certainly a universe where he could try to parlay his cooperation with this committee into some more lenient treatment. I don't know. And I, I couldn't say what he's thinking. But, yeah, he'll be he'll be marched off to prison shortly, I think, for sure, after this hearing. That's wild. And, and will he do about a year in federal prison? I mean, that's what he's been sentenced to. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what actually happens. But, yeah. I wonder if if the president uh, or Merrick Garland will intervene and sort of soften the blow for him somehow if it means he's already put off the House Oversight Committee three times. And- well, that's what I'm wondering. And that's, you know, he's he's got this hearing allegedly on Monday. I wonder if they'll be if he'll suddenly pull out and then all of a sudden it's it's your prison sentence is now going to be home confinement. Who knows? Hopefully that doesn't happen. And what's great now is the media is watching this all very, very closely. So it would be very hard to do that in a way that didn't invite a lot of public scrutiny. But anything's possible. And we've seen so much already that nothing would really shock me at this point. No, and and there have been publications, you know, the the Washington Post, the New York Times, who have started to turn in terms of these stories and um, the unacknowledged seventh grandchild of the president, and they're starting to take issue with this. So I think you're absolutely right, and they are paying attention. They are watching all of this. So at what point do they actually use this ammunition to take aim at the president and to keep him from running for re-election. What what happens in your estimation? It has been interesting to see the, the, I hate this term, but the mainstream media sort of slowly recognize that there is a there there. Obviously, you alluded to the New York Times, which I believe it was Maureen Dowd wrote a great piece. Um, saying, you know, it's, it's outrageous that President Biden doesn't acknowledge his own grandchild when so much of his personal brand is about his family and my family is the most important thing. Family is this, everything, John right. Levine. Family right. is everything. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I would point you also to the uh, article uh, the other day in Business Insider, an incredible scoop where they managed to figure out one of the buyers for Hunter Biden's art, which, surprise, surprise, is a major Democratic donor. Stop it right now, who also has phenomenal taste in artwork. Right, right, exactly. And then an incredible one, another buyer bought 11 pieces for $875,000 total, and we don't know who that person is. But let me tell you, I'd be very curious, given what we already know, but that was broken by Business Insider, a publication that didn't previously have much interest in this story. So it's very and I, you know, I welcome the competition from my colleagues at other outlets. It's been lonely. (laughs) Are you frankly are you frankly surprised, given the facts that you have and the way things have unfolded, um, the lack of reporting? Well, I mean, surprised is a big word. I I don't get surprised by by the inattention of of certain members of the press towards the Democratic Party, because that's a very, very old story. But it's always disheartening when, like, the evidence becomes so overwhelming, as it has been. And this business about, you know, Joe Biden being involved in his son's overseas business, we've known this for years. I mean, it's great that Devin Archer is coming forward and he's going to talk about phone calls. We've known this for years. Mm -hmm. Hunter, I reported 
I think over a year ago, when Joe Biden met with business partners in the White House when he was vice president. That's a fact. That was reported. That was done. We have known that Hunter Biden's business partners have handled Joe Biden's personal tax returns and, like, had access to his finances. We, this is, this, we knew this years ago. So we're, we're, getting, we're getting more evidence to prove something we already knew. So it's great, but it, it's very quaint for me. It's great, but it's late. Let's, let's listen to a report from Griff Jenkins, who uh, is outside the Hunter Watch courtroom. Judge Norieka asked if, asked the prosecution if there was an ongoing existing separate investigation into Hunter Biden right now. The prosecutor saying yes. And what was holding this deal up, and they're in recess now uh, because the defense asked for some time, so the judge granted, what's up in the air is whether or not Judge Norieka will even accept this deal because this deal would possibly give Hunter some immunity to future charges and she's not okay with that. That is why this is taking so very long. Does that surprise I mean, you, John Levine? That's wild. I, look, I am not a lawyer, so I reached out. I, Jonathan Turley, I'm putting this on him. I asked him, "Is what's the probability of her rejecting this plea? And he said she didn't have a lot of room to maneuver. So I, I, he's, you know, he's to me a gold standard person, and that's what he told me when I asked him. And... That was that was my view. But this is this is like I believe Griff Jenkins just said there's an active prosecution or the prosecution said there is an active investigation. So, you know, that that potentially changes things. And I don't I don't we'd be in a real no man's land if this plea was rejected. But it would be certainly given the overwhelming amount of evidence that this case was compromised. I, I, I mean, that it certainly would be the only ethical thing to do, I feel. In, in this circumstance. Well, I feel you're absolutely right. I'm going to continue following your reporting at uh, the official newspaper of the SS Canadalia. That you. is the New York Post. John Levine, a phenomenal reporter, uh, writing the truth and spitting out lyrics. Homie, he's with you. Jonathan, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. That Bye. is John Levine. I am Kennedy in for Brian Kilmeade. More on the other side. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Is it really the dog's day-to-day pressure cooker lifestyle that's leading him to bite? Listen, a younger, less experienced comedian would make a joke about like a dog having erratic behavior could be associated with a, a dog coming into contact with some cocaine. But I personally am not <laughs> going to make that joke. I think I wish I wish he would. Absolutely. I think that that is a joke that certainly should be made. If you've got these two hopped-up German shepherds. That, that can't help themselves and are biting people indiscriminately and they're going after federal law enforcement. They're basically the Hunter Bidens of the canine world. And uh, they're worried about their freedom, man. So if, if you find the cocaine in the attic or in the library or in the West Wing entryway cubbies, you don't even know where you found the cocaine. But you know that cocaine is sprinkled throughout the White House like Jimmy's in a cupcake bakery. It, it, it could be all over the place. And these dogs are German shepherds. 
They're bred to find the drugs. These dogs are also German shepherds that are really close to Hunter Biden, and they have developed appetites for things that can ultimately do them harm. And it's not the dog's fault. It's it's not them. It's not Major. It's not Champ or Commander, whatever the hell their names are. It is the owners. They they are so incompetent. They can't run the country, let alone properly train dogs. It is inhumane. They have to look at themselves and realize two things. One, maybe we're not dog people. Number two, maybe we're too incompetent to run a country. So the only thing for Joe Biden to do, give up the dogs, give up the ghost, give up the presidency, and let us hump other people's legs in peace. It has been an absolute pleasure filling in for my friend Brian Kilmeade here on the Brian Kilmeade Show. You can listen to my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World, Spotify, Apple, FoxNewsPodcast.com. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.